Internet of Things data collection has been steadily rising at the EPA. Both the reporting entities at the state level and the agency itself are taking in more measurements of the environment using devices that sense and then send in what they sniff. For an update and some advice for other Internet of Things users, I spoke with Division Director with the EPA Office of Information Security and Privacy, Lee Kelly. We started with how this program has changed and what's been happening. So the program has been maturing over the last couple of years, since, like you said, the last time we spoke. Um, and we're getting more and more visibility into some of the proliferation of IoT devices, sensors, uh, whatnot, and they're having an impact, uh, at least from a data gathering, data analysis standpoint, if not others. And what are some of the measurements that are taken by these instruments? What What's the nature of the information you're getting? Uh, well, some of the ones we're getting are related to uh, air quality and water water issues around ground, um, as well as, you know, humidity, if you will, or other components of that. That's two, probably two of the biggest ones. Um, and let's just, we can sum that up as water quality and air quality. Sure. And is this data gathering mostly done by the reporting entities, or does EPA also have its own Internet of Things for data gathering? Uh, I would say uh, in some respects a little of both. We are seeing a, a increase in the number of sensors, devices being uh, put together to better analyze the quality based on uh, what EPA needs are from our staff internally. But we're also working with states and other entities to gather data or to analyze data from their networks as well. So I would imagine then that one of the main concerns as more and more entities install different devices from different manufacturers, maybe some of them build them themselves, is uniformity of the formats of what these devices put out. Exactly. And also how they're, how they're designed to do what they do. I mean, gathering data, analyzing the data from either water or air, if you will, is one um, obviously valuable component. But then again, how is the device configured? Is it configured to only talk to similar devices? How does it connect to the network securely? How does it transmit the data back and forth? So those are other considerations. And when it comes to air, I guess, or water, the EPA measures a lot of possibilities that might be in the air or water that should not be or should be there in lower quantities. And so it sounds like one device might not be capable of covering everything that the EPA regulates that's in the air or in the water. Uh, That's correct. And I think we've grown ever since our inception, if you will, back in the 70s, to show how we can not only use more than one sensor, but we can network them together to get better quality or better quality samples, more samples, more analysis from more places, as opposed to in the early days, we would have remote sensors that were static devices, right? Mainly, say, along with the National Weather Service or with the Geologic Survey floodplain sensors, and those required manual visits to get the data because they did have data storage capabilities. Now we've progressed to devices that will gather Uh, transmit data to our networks, to other networks where we gather the data from there. And so we've progressed a long way since back in the 70s. And what is the transmission medium in general? Is it Wi-Fi or is it using the cellular network or some other radio frequency? Well, so in the 2000s, it was primarily cell. um, And I think we still have some of that, depending on where the locations are. But primarily nowadays, it's Wi-Fi. If we can connect to some sort of Wi-Fi receiver, then we're good. Because out in the country or maybe out on the farmlands or places, say, near a remote power plant, is there always public Wi-Fi out there in the air? 
that's and that's one of the primary questions, right? If it's not, then we may we may have to use the cell technology that's around there if that's available. Sure. And so as this network has grown in complexity, you might say, and in technological capability, one of the shortfalls that you hear a lot about IoT devices when it comes to security is do they have the power to run encryption on the data and still be able to do their jobs because they're not full bore computers sitting out there in the middle of nowhere? Correct. And we also look at, um, and you mentioned power, which is a very good example. Uh, We look at that from, if you think of an IoT device as, say, maybe three conceptual stages, it's gathering data. It's then computing to some degree what the data means and, and what to do with it. And then it either sends it to or somebody reads the data as an actuator. Uh, all of that, as you mentioned, requires power. So even though the devices are getting smaller and we can build more of them, if you will, we still have to have those power concerns as well. So that's electrical power, but also computing power, correct? Correct. We're speaking with Lee Kelly. He's division director with the Office of Information Security and Privacy at the EPA. And what about encryption? Is that becoming a greater part of the IoT scheme to make sure that the data is protected on its way? I think it is. Uh, and I, to some degree, I would hope it is. It really depends on the data you're collecting. Uh, you do want to make sure that the integrity of the data is the same from when it's collected and stored and analyzed to when it gets to the end user. So that may be a part of it. Encryption may solve that. It may be something similar to like checksums or other you know, and file integrity uh, checkings or checkpoints along the way. So, but encryption certainly would be a part of that discussion. And federal practitioners for that are concerned with cybersecurity worry about two things. One, the integrity of the data, and two, whether it can be kind of purloined, either at rest or en route. I would imagine at the EPA, the bigger concern is that the data retain its integrity, that no one can alter it. That's probably a bigger concern for you than that someone could just get the data set. Again, depending on what the data set actually is, but then there's other concerns as well. Can someone hijack those sensors because they are, in essence, portable computers and do nefarious things with those sensors? Could they make turn them into a hacking network to attack either our networks or somebody else who may be in proximity or even if it's on the network or on the Internet around the world? So that's the concern, um, as well as the availability of it. If the sensor goes down, then obviously it's not collecting data. And we would need to be aware of that as well. So a technician or one of the data analysts or whomever can go out to that sensor and try to find out what the problem is. So what are some of the strategies that you use to make sure this all works the way it should and in a secure fashion? Well, some of them is a a manual, if you will, uh, monitoring process. We know that, you know, a certain regional program office should be getting data from, let's say, 100 sensors on a weekly basis, daily basis, whatever the time frame is, then they can check their records to see if up sensor number 74 is not reported in three days or three hours. Um, and then they can go take a look and try to find out what the problem is. So that's one way. You can build it into the network capabilities of the sensor itself. It can send home basically a calling home beacon. And if, if whoever or if another machine is monitoring for those beacons, if it doesn't get it, it can send alerts out to the team that's responsible for those sensors. So there's a combination of both, manual as well as network-based, that can happen. And I wanted to get back to that encryption idea because I know that NIST has been, you know, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has been working on lightweight encryption such that low-powered devices can also do encryption of the data that is on there. Is that something you're following, watching, hoping to adopt? It's something that I personally am following and watching. Uh, We'll see how it gets implemented and, and what the the standards actually come out to be. Uh, I haven't heard any 
major issues yet, but like you said, they're they're working on it, and I'm I'm one of the followers, if you will. Sure, and given this complex of federal and state data gathering with devices, how do you make sure that states understand what you need, and how do you make sure that you understand what it is they're trying to do so that there's some harmony to all of this of growing IoT data gathering? So I think there's a lot of collaboration between the EPA and their various customers, if you will, the states being one of the big ones. Um, and I think as long as those communication lines are open, then hopefully those requirements and those standards as they come out can be transferred back and forth or may at least be discussed back and forth so that, yes, you're right, on both ends we're trying to solve that issue at the same time with something that's compatible on both sides. Uh, and then we can hopefully make it a seamless transition once the encryption starts. But safe to say that this IoT data gathering for environmental information is here to stay and probably will keep growing? I, I do think so, yes. Lee Kelly is Division Director with the Office of Information Security and Privacy at the EPA. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.